Hello and welcome to Growing Tech Fast, the condensed Org 3D podcast where we talk about growing tech startups with those who have grown them. Today I'm joined by Ryan Frederick. He is a successful founder, investor and principal of data analytics companies and has been in the space for over 20 years. Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you on the pod today. How are you doing? Bernard, well, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Thanks for being here. So for the benefit of our listeners then, Ryan, perhaps we should kick off with you telling us a little bit about what you are, um, what your mission is, and the work that you're kind of doing at the moment. Yeah, it's been a serendipitous journey for sure. Um, I I knew I wasn't a big company person at a fairly young age, um, but I also didn't know what that meant. So it's, it's one of those things where you have clarity around one aspect of something, but then you don't really know how to use that clarity. So I was fortunate enough, I joined a, a, a small business that was trying to make a go of a new product in, in, in a new market. And we didn't really call them startups back then. There was no startup ecosystem. There weren't startup communities. There wasn't even a, really a startup you know, industry at that time. And we had some success with it. And, and that company ended up selling and then identified another problem, you know, as part of that, that we could address. So built the product around that. And, and I think one of the things that's really important and one of the things that I used to push back on a lot was I hated the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And right. I, I, I thought that that was doing a real disservice to being skilled at something. Um, but I eventually realized that if you're gonna if you're gonna create something, whether it's a product or a company, you have to be skilled, but you also have to have access to people that that can help you right in in that journey and in that endeavor. So I ultimately came to respect the fact that it's both of them. So I've been fortunate to have access to a lot of opportunities and interesting things and. Um, you know, that, that is just good fortune, you know, ultimately, um, I, I didn't have too much, you know, of a part in, in some of that. So just appreciative for, you know, getting access to opportunities that probably people a lot more capable and smarter than I haven't had access to. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, now, I understand that you yourself have a strong background in both product development and the kind of sales and business side uh, of the company. How do you think that those two very different skill sets have helped you as an entrepreneurial leader? And do you think that one is more important or useful than the other? Yeah, I don't think that one is more important than the other. Um, And I think that one of the real significant challenges with creating a new product and, and, and trying to commercialize a company around that product is that everything matters. It just doesn't matter equally at the same time. So, um, but I think a a big part of product is, is understanding the problem and, and, and customer validation. And there's some sales as part of those things, right? Because, Mm. you know, sales, um, as as you alluded to a little bit, um, is about relationships ultimately. Um, and, a problem understanding and customer validation around a new product is really building a relationship with a customer who's willing to spend enough time with you to understand the problem and to understand and help you to sort of iterate on the solution to the problem that that's all about building a you know respect and trust and collaborating with that customer 
which is really what sales is ultimately. So I think that they're they're both equally important, but it, and I think that there are skills in both that um, apply to both. And and I think if if we get back to sort of the humanistic relationship piece of it, I think that's the common thread across the building of products and then the selling of products. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting that that the kind of overlap is actually potentially the most the most useful part where it's it's an understanding of what the problems are and how how to fix those. Um, okay, so kind of do you think there are any common perceptions or ideas that you yourself had about building a business from the ground up that you then realized to be inaccurate after kind of having gone through that journey yourself? Yeah, I think it's easy for all of us to fall into the trap of two things. One is um, th- that we we know best, and 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 th- that we we can build a product or start a company that's a very sort of ego-driven exercise. Mm. And yeah. and the 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 best the best founders and frankly the most successful companies over time are the ones that are the humblest and yes, ego might be a a part of the, you know, the initiation of, you know, pursuing a company, but the, the founders that quickly flip the script and make it about the customers and the product and the problem and, and put themselves at the end of the line. Those are the founders that typically end up being the most successful. Uh, And the other thing is, you know, this is also not an epiphany, but you know, it's still easy to fall in this trap. We 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 still think that if we build something cool, th- that somehow people are going to come, people are going to find out about it, people are going to want it, people are going to find it valuable, and it's not really until probably the last five years or so that we've really figured out that we have to value distribution of a product mm-hmm. as much as we have to value the building of the product. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Definitely. Um, so kind of on, on that same grain of, of obviously you've been that through that journey a lot. Um, I know that you're also kind of an investor and advisor to numerous startup companies. I'm keen sort of on a general note, what, what do you think is more important at a, for a company at the startup stage? Uh, good advice or strong investment? Ooh, man, no one's ever asked me that question before. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I would say it, it, this is going to sound like a a cop out answer, but it depends. And, and I think the qualifiers are if, if it's a company that, that has no chance of succeeding without significant capital, right. To, to execute, you know, on, on the plan, then great advice is not going to help that company overcome the fact that they need a huge capital infusion to, to, you know, deliver on the potential. Mm. Um, The same, same can be said though, for a company that could succeed growing more slowly, more methodically um, in a niche, right. Um, Mm. Before going broad base. And in in that that case, advice is probably going to be more important than the capital early on. Uh, because they can grow more slowly and more methodically and still fulfill their potential as a company. So I think it depends. Um, 
and I think what we run the risk now too of, of a lot of startups um, thinking that they have to raise a lot of capital really early for them to have any chance of success. And they get so caught up in the fundraising part of it that they lose sight of actually uh, digging in with customers around the problem and around a potential solution that, that customers are going to value. That sometimes I'm concerned that founders have sort of investment, um, too big of an investment focus versus really digging in with customers and really digging into the problem, which then might elicit and make it easier for them to get investment versus them trying to seek investment before they have some of that early validation. Oh, that's a that's a very insightful answer, actually. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so it, across that career of, of, of yours, I know it's been a long one with a lot of different experiences. Is there a particular achievement or a particular moment that stands out for you as one that you're most proud of? Yeah, and I don't know that I would say that it, it I'll give you two, but they're very different sort of moments. And one is, is, uh, not to be that proud of it, you know, frankly, um, because it was something where um, we got sort of hit over the head with a brick. Uh, so the company that I mentioned um, that I joined that was the first, you know, startup team that I was a part of, we had built this online service and we were uh, focused on selling it to law firms. And we were at a conference and a, a guy comes up to the, to the booth and, and he says, hey, show me what you've got. And I give him a demo. And he said, um, well, I could use this to do pre-employment screenings. And he was the head of security for a very large international retailer who also happened to be an attorney. That's why he was at the conference. And he said, is there any reason why I couldn't use this, you know, to, you know, as part of our pre-employment screening process? And I said, well, we don't use it for that. We sell it to, to, we sell it to law firms. We sell it to attorneys. And he said, well, again, is there any reason I couldn't use it for a pre-employment screening? And I said, well, I don't know. And, and he said, um, well, come to my office. And so I met with them a couple of weeks later and, and they subscribed and it changed the whole direct direction of the company because we ended up pivoting the product. We still marketed and sold to law firms, but then we went after the pre-employment screening business. I and mean, we started marketing to human resources people and, and security people and the company grew in the course of nine months, like 4X. Um, and it, but it was one of those things that even though he was trying to tell me, look, there's a better market and there's a better target for your product than you're currently working on, I was sort of blind to the fact of what he was trying to tell me. Um, and then eventually, you know, I, I sort of woke up and, and he said, hey, you know, this is actually a better, this is actually a better, a better market for you guys. And it, it just sort of reiterates, because I've now seen this over time a lot, where the initial target for a product and the initial value proposition that you think that you have is almost never the one that you end up landing on that is the best one. And you have to say open-minded to, to the fact that that's probably going to be the case, that where you start is not where you finish with the product and with the company. Um, so that's one. The other one I would say is we, um, we actually give you, you know, a failure. We, we started a company 
that we were um, trying to compete with guru.com and Upwork, and this was before Upwork existed, but we were, we had an early product in the hire a freelancer space. And we thought our differentiating model was going to be, we were going to hire a local concierge basically in every major market that would match make between the freelancers and the people with the projects. The problem is um, having a, uh, a person in every major market is expensive. And if you hire them before you have any projects being posted to the, to the platform and any freelancers replying to projects, you've hired a bunch of concierges to do nothing, essentially. <laughs> so so we, bur we burned through um, a couple of million dollars in like six months. And before we realized that our model was completely flawed, it was completely broken, and and we we and we 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 made all of the cardinal mistakes, um, you know, and and so, um, you know, it was an experience that helped you know really inform me even after a couple of successes, th that just because you've been successful with one product in one market trying to solve one problem for a certain set of customers does not mean you're going to be successful in another space with a different product and a different value proposition and that you can't just port what you did with one to the other because they're different problems, different customers, different value propositions, et cetera. And we had, we had to hurt, learn a hard lesson that that was the case because we made every mistake that you can possibly make. And we went to our investors and the sum of that story is we went to our investors after we burned through a couple million dollars and, proved that we didn't know what we were doing we went to them and asked for more money and they not only said no but they said hell no and they kicked us out of their office so um <laughs> that was that was a fun experience well those are two great two great examples um it's interesting as well how the two examples that you chose were ones where kind of perhaps you weren't the one to have that kind of um realization you know the first one it was very much you being shown um a good idea and the second one was was a failure so i guess my kind of follow-up to that is do you think that the failures um and kind of um lack of 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 good ideas is more important in moving forwards than your successes and your achievements or do you think that there's an equal balance there i think it's I think there's a pretty equal balance. Um, you know, I, I've, I've heard over time and I've read a lot that, 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 you know, you learn more, people say that you learn more from your failures than your, your successes. I'm not entirely sure that's true um, because I think that if you're paying attention during your successes, you should be learning a lot around, you know, that, that, that formula, right? And that, and, and that roadmap that worked. Um, I will say what your what the failures do is they at least keep you humble, right? So they keep you willing to learn and to grow and to challenge your assumptions. And so I would say that I would sort of look at it differently now. I think we learn more from our successes, but I think our fail our failures keep us grounded enough that we can learn inside of those successes because we've been we've been on the other side and we know what it feels like you know when we get it wrong so mm. i think they're both valuable but i think they're valuable in different ways yeah that's a that's a fantastic answer i haven't actually heard it kind of explained um in that way before 
Um, so kind of final one on, on sort of business in, in a general sense then. Um, obviously, the past six months or so have been a, a hugely turbulent time with the coronas, uh, coronavirus pandemic. How have you um, kind of adapted to that and how do you think that it will shift the way in which businesses are managed moving forwards? Yeah, I've always been a little bit of a work vagabond in, in that I like different settings to, to work in because I think it helps with creativity and I think it helps with focus. So personally, um, I, I have not spent much time in the office over, over the last several years. And so working remotely was, was you know, not something uncomfortable for me. Um, Something different for our team uh, at AWH, uh, the product firm that I'm, I'm a principal in, they mostly showed up at the office every day, right, to collaborate and, and work on building digital products together and with clients. And they all went remote, as most companies, you know, did with their teams. And, and they had, you know, the biggest challenge of now adapting to the fact that they now couldn't get around a whiteboard, right, and, and sort of sketch out some, some concepts some some user flows and user experiences and even data flows etc and so the transition to remote and virtual for them um, you know was challenging but you know they also didn't really skip a beat um, and uh, our work with clients progressed nicely and well and, and effectively and you know you know a shout out to our clients as well because they had some participation in making that transition work and, and go well um, but I think the, the key for us as part of that was we were very transparent about our plans and why we were doing what we were doing, when we were doing it. We also gave the team the tools to facilitate them working remotely and virtually as well, you know, as, as they could. Um, and we, we maintained a, we were very intentional, intentional about maintaining our culture. So we got the team together consistently and we still do uh, around, you know, e even silly stuff like, like uh, for, for the holidays, we did a gingerbread making, um, you know, competition and we sent every team member a gingerbread kit and then they put it together and, and it was corny and it was silly and it was kind of ridiculous. And I'm still upset that my gingerbread house was one of the worst. Um, but, you know, we've got a very, intentional about making sure that that even though we were remote and virtual that we didn't lose the connectivity between our team uh, team members and sort of their roles and contributions for for client projects yeah it's a fantastic answer um, I think the the key thing there about all the things we've discussed so far is that relationships seem to be um, sort of at the core of, of your ethos uh, and what you do so in terms of um, kind of I want to talk about sales in particular for um, a couple of minutes here. There are seemingly kind of new sales ideas and new strategies arising almost on a weekly basis. Uh, and these are often accompanied by more and more innovative tools for salespeople. So CRMs, ERPs, automated lead generation tools. To what extent do you think that all of this innovation actually translates into increased sales success? I don't think much of it does, frankly, um, and, and I and I think that, that um, I'll, I'll, I'm also not a huge fan of, of sales training um, because I think sales training is a is a shot of adrenaline, mm. and, it, and it's kind of a crutch because 
a company will send their sales team through sales training and then everybody's perspective around that afterwards is okay now the team is ready to succeed now the team is ready to sell better than they were selling pre-training and and everybody's almost always disappointed because the sales training becomes a crutch right and and it and it almost never delivers on the promise and i think and i think part of that is because sales coaching ongoing iterative sales coaching is a hundred times better than sale than point in time sales training because training is and if we take a sports analogy uh training is what you do on the on the practice field right to make sure that that you're fit and you understand your role and you understand the game plan etc coaching is then what happens individually between somebody who understands the big picture and how to maximize your skill and contribution and that coaching typically happens one-on-one -on -one, right uh, where training often is in a group setting um, so i think sales training has also led a lot of people and a lot of companies down um, and and i think the reason that tools and sales training and lots of other things have not delivered on the promise is because sales really hasn't changed that much it, irrespective of all the other factors over time it really ultimately comes down to can you initiate cultivate and cultivate a relationship with a potential customer to the point that they don't any any longer feel like you're selling them they feel like it's a collaboration where the outcome now is they get to choose whether to buy or not um, and and i think that we lose I think if anything, we've become worse at relationships over time, not better. And I think social media and a lot of digital things have impacted that. But I think the thing that's harmed effective selling probably the most is the fact that we're not as good as we used to be about initiating and cultivating relationships. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a really fantastic answer. Thank you. Um, now, I want to talk as well about the kind of more product side. I know that you um, are a huge kind of product person. Um, and now a lot of companies, especially in the startup phase as well, fail when the product simply doesn't work out. What do you think are some of the key mistakes that businesses make in the R&D phase and the go-to-market strategy of a new product? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of principles that either get overlooked or misunderstood um, when creating a, a, a new product. One of them we spoke about a little bit earlier, but I'm going to mention it again because it's that important. I think if you're going to if you're going to build a product that users are going to value and want to pay for uh, at an acceptable level, you have to understand the problem at an expert level. Because I don't think you can build a problem and expect customers to pay for it if you don't understand the problem at least as well as they do, if not better. Uh, I think the other thing that happens is products either get early stage products either get underbuilt or overbuilt. So they're they're they either do more than they need to do, and then there's too much user friction and the user experience is too complicated, or they're underbuilt because people now think that. that well, I've got to I've got to move really fast, which is true. But you can also move too fast, and people have heard the you know the, the couple of cliches out there, uh, right? Of 
uh, you know, fail fast and break things, right? And 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 then there's the other quote that's out there around, well, if you're if you're not proud of your first product, then you're not doing it correctly. And and uh, the problem with cliches like that is and mottos is they get propagated and and then they get blown out of proportion. And some products that get released as first products are so poorly designed and so underbuilt that expecting a customer to, to, to use it and find value in it, it you're, you're just sort of kidding yourself, right? And so there is a fine line between it being overbuilt and underbuilt, but if you understand the problem at an expert level, and if you've spent enough time with customers understanding the problem and the iterating on the product, you're gonna strike that balance easier and better than if you only understand the problem at a at a superficial level and you've been building the product mostly in a vacuum, right, on your own. Um, and and so I think that, and then I'll add one more product validation when you're act, when you're iterating with a pro with a customer on a product often gets done uh, improperly. Most validation gets done in the positive, and product builders say to customers, "Tell me what you like about this. Tell me." how it would be a value to you uh, and and you know tell me you know why it's going to be um, beneficial for you you know etc the right way to do product validation is to go to those customers and to say tell me what you don't like about the product tell me what it needs to do differently tell me why you wouldn't use it because you need to give customers and users permission to tell you what they don't like about the product because that's where the real meat is it's not in, hey, tell me what you like about it, because you should already know what they like about it, right? If you've gotten to the point where you're asking, tell me what you like about it, and you truly don't know the answer, you've probably already run a SKU. Well, you re and part and parcel to that, you need to be giving them permission to tell you, tell you what they don't like about it. And most of us don't do that because we're we are not wired to go to someone that we're, we want to get a positive response from by asking them a negative question to then get a negative response. So it's counterintuitive, but it works. And it, it, it actually works really well that you can condense the time to build the product and the value to customers if you do your validation in a negative connotation versus a positive connotation. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. Um, that's fantastic. Now, just uh, kind of one more question probably from my side. I'm conscious of time here. Um, it's leading on from what you were just saying there, but you're someone who's had a great deal of success in building products um, and then also in bringing them to market and selling them. So I'm interested from a, from a theoretical point of view, would you rather have a poor product and a great sales team or a poor sales team and a great product? Uh, another really good question. And I think it has changed over time. I think, I think 10, 15 years ago th that um, you, you could, you could sell a, a, you could sell a bad product. And, and I think um, it, now that's less true. Um, I, I think, Partly because, you know, back then, first almost always won. If you were the first product into a space, first meant everything because it gave you such an advantage over the ones that, that followed. You know, the, the, first, the first mover advantage was real. 
Um, I think that's changed now. I think that, that the best products win. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to build a, a relationship right, with a potential customer and user if you can't sort of under if you can't demonstrate to them that the product is a good fit with their process and, and the value that they need to get out of it. And there are very few salespeople that are going to be able to put enough lipstick, you know, on on a product that isn't that good to sell it effectively. With that said, we also now though um undervalue distribution and we, we tend to build really well designed and built products. And then, and then we don't value the distribution piece of it with sales being part of that distribution. So sales is still really, really important as part of the distribution strategy for a product. But now the best products win. And if you don't have the best product, Zoom is a great example. We're recording this on Zoom. Mm. Right? If, if, if anybody had said um, that they were going to build a new product in the remote virtual online meeting space to compete with WebEx and GoToMeeting and Teams and, and Hangout and all the free tools that were already out there, most people would say, you're crazy. But Zoom, Zoom has won the day in that space because they actually legit built a better product, right? And so it, it, if you build a better product now, and you have adequate marketing and distribution around it, the best products win the day, and it's hard to put enough lipstick on a poor product to make it to make it commercially viable now. Fantastic. Another another great answer, Ryan. That's um that's all we've got time for today. But it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I think you've given some really unique um insights there into the world of startups from a unique perspective from someone who's had that product background and the, the commercial background as well so thank you so much for that ben i appreciate it thanks for having me great combo no worries at all well thanks uh, for listening everyone and tune in next time to growing tech fast